appreciate it. Well, so glad to be back with you guys tonight. And I was here a year ago, and I think we did talk about Rooted a little bit. And some of you know my story, and I'm here local. This is a church that I love to partner with. I've been working in Los Angeles County uh, for about 25, 20, almost 27 years, uh, working nothing but homicide investigations for the last dozen or so. And these were all cold case homicides. So if you like watching ID Network or you like watching Dateline, I think I've been on Dateline more than anybody else in the country, with cases that are just from Los Angeles County, I work in the agency at Torrance, and uh, these are unsolved murders. There's no statute of limitations on a murder. Now, my first part of my career for almost 10 years, I was not a believer. I didn't think any of this was worth your time, worth my time, worth anyone's time. And I would have pushed back on anybody who was a believer. I only knew two kinds of Christians. I knew cops who were Christians. I knew a few of those. And they were not really prepared to defend what they believed. I would ask them, you know, why do you think this is our suspect? Why do you think this is the guy who did it? And they would give you like 15 reasons why that's our suspect. But if you asked them, why do you believe that the Bible is reliable? They couldn't give me three reasons. Really? So the other group of Christians that I knew were the people we were taking to jail because those people would tell you they were Christians. A lot of them. So I thought, you know what? I don't want to be part of either one of those groups, the unthoughtful ones or the ones who don't seem to behave like it's true. I didn't want to part of any one of those two. So I stayed out. But at the age of 35, I started to look closely at the evidence because I was prompted to because someone told me that Jesus is a really smart guy. Let me show you my son. My son, Jimmy, is um, still in the job doing the same thing. And he's using the same uniform that I used for years. As a matter of fact, he's wearing the same name tag because I, he has not got my name. We're not creative. As I told you last year when I was here, there's three of us. I had the same job as him before him, and my dad had the same job as me before me. We all have the same name at the same agency. If you've called our department in the last 57 years and asked for Jim Wallace, there's been somebody there to answer the phone. Because we've been there that long. Now, what I'm going to do tonight on these screens is I'm going to teach you how to work death investigations, okay? So just be ready. Uh, There's some tricks you, you can use working in death investigations that will also help you discover if God exists. In a strange way, believe it or not, you can apply one technique to the other. Let's start off with an imaginary uh, scenario. Imagine, you ever remember a Twilight Zone show? Okay, you're in the Twilight Zone, and we've got a dead body laying on the floor. And we've got to figure out, is this a murder? Now, it may not be a murder. It's a death for sure. But we don't know if it's a murder because there are four ways to die. And we don't know which of those four ways is the case here. I think we can say pretty comfortably it's not a natural death. But it could be an accident or a suicide or a homicide. We don't know yet. We've got a single gunshot wound. We've got a pistol laying on the floor with a single casing laying next to it. And we've got a note. Now, one way we can determine whether or not this is a homicide is to play a little game that I've tried to teach other investigators. It's a game I call inside or outside the room. And you might think, what does that really mean? He's in a room. He's not in the black. Let's let's make a room. Let's put four walls around him. We'll kind of make a room. He's in a box, okay? So now the question is, can I explain everything that's inside the room by staying inside the room? If I can, this is not a homicide. You clear on this? Can I explain everything that's in the box by staying in the box? In other words, okay, I've got, a, I've got a, um, a note, which is in the room, but it's got his handwriting. It's his paper. I find his paper elsewhere in the room. It's on a pen that I can find elsewhere in the room. It's only got his fingerprints on it. It's only got his skin cell transfer on it. Okay, I can stay inside the room to explain the note. He did it while he was in the room. 
And if someone tells me that that's his gun, yeah, he's owned that gun for years. He keeps it in a safe in the corner of the room. It's registered to him. It's only got his skin cell transfer on. Okay, great. I can explain the gun by staying in the room. And anyone can shoot themselves once by themselves without any help from someone outside the room. So here I can explain everything by staying inside the room. Good chance it's one of these two. Let's change it a little bit. What if he doesn't have a single gunshot wound? What if he's got multiple gunshot wounds and there are some other details that are changed? So, for example, yeah, there's a piece of paper, but it's not in his handwriting. I can't find that paper anywhere else in the room. It doesn't have his fingerprints on it. It's an unknown fingerprint. Well, now I've got to go outside the room to figure out who, that, who wrote that. And, and I talked to his, his family. They said, oh, he hates guns. He's afraid of guns. He would never own a gun. And sure enough, it's not registered to him. And it doesn't have his skin. So I can't identify it to him. So now I've got to go outside the room to figure out who owns the gun. And it's kind of hard to shoot yourself multiple times in the back by yourself in the room. Now I've got to go outside the room, and there's bloody footprints leading outside the room in this scenario. So clearly, the best explanation is outside the room. Now everything shifts toward a homicide investigation. Why? Because we now have evidence of an intruder, and intruders change everything. Intruders are what turn death scenes into crime scenes. Now, I thought as a person who was investigating these kinds of crimes, but I wasn't a believer, but I thought, could I apply this approach and determine if God exists? What if the room we're talking about is not a crime scene, but is instead the entire natural universe as we know it? Can I explain everything that's in that room by staying in the room? If I can, then your natural sciences will explain everything. Remember, the only thing you have to cook with in the room is space, time, matter, and the laws of physics and chemistry that act on space, time, and matter. That's all you have. Those are the only, cause, that's the only causes available to you. I think there are actually eight things about this room that you have to explain. First of all, how did it begin? We're in a room that's a finite, limited room that has a beginning, and it appears to be fine-tuned for the appearance of biological life like ours. And then that life emerges from inorganic materials and has the appearance of design. We also have conscious minds with which we're thinking about this, and we have the freedom to make conscious decisions. And there's an objective standard of moral truth of good and evil we have to account for. And finally, we all recognize there's evil in the room. Now, it turns out all of us have to explain these eight things in the room. The only question is, is the best explanation Inside the room, can I explain these with just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry? Or is the better explanation outside the room? If it is, then we got a problem. We got an intruder. I think that those eight things actually are best explained outside the room. That's why I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene, not to suggest that God has committed a crime, but to suggest that we could examine the universe like a crime scene to see what the best explanation for a cause is. Now, I will tell you that these eight things, I think, are explained best outside the room. I am not going to go through these eight things with you tonight, okay? So if you need evidence and proof that there is a God, I teach this course at Biola. It takes me 17 hours to teach it at Biola, okay? So I could lock the doors here and just hold you here overnight and force this down your throat for 17 hours, but I'm not going to do that. Therefore, there is a God, okay? So I just proved it. So for those of you who are uptight about that kind of thing, I've already made my case, okay? But tonight we're going to talk about the thing that I think most people would say is an evidence against God's existence, the existence of evil and injustice in the world. 
Let me give you an example of this kind of injustice. Here's a picture of my dad working a case from 1974. This young man was accused and arrested for killing a 10-year-old girl in our city. It was a brutal murder. He, and he actually confessed to the entire thing. Every sordid detail of what he did to her, how he killed her, how he got rid of her body. None of it is true. He has some issues, but he's not my killer. I reopened this case in 2003. We just recently think we've identified a suspect through DNA with our new ancestry DNA technology. Thank you to all of you who are putting your ancestry DNA in the system. Now I can convict your parents of things. <laughs> so, so here he is. He's not our killer. And by the way, the one we've identified has been dead for 15 years. This family rightly has asked me, how can there be an all-loving, all-powerful God, yet this kind of thing happened to our daughter? There will be no justice He's been dead for 15 years. He lived his life out and died of natural causes. How can this be right? I will call her Jackie for purposes of tonight's talk. Well, when I answer this question, how can an all-loving, all-powerful God allow any act of evil to occur? It's not a short answer. It's a complex answer, the same way the answer for how could this happen to Jackie. Well, Jackie was the kind of person who would be willing to get into a stranger's car. If she isn't that kind of person, this crime does not occur. So that's one element that has to be in place first. And it happened to occur on a holiday in which her family was making dinner and told her, go outside. We have no time for you to be inside. And they weren't paying attention to what was happening with Jackie. If those two things had not occurred together, this, would not have, uh, this crime would not have occurred. Also, the person who did this to her has, a, I'm sure, a disturbing upbringing of his own. Most pedophiles I've worked have also had their own disturbing childhood. If he has no disturbing childhood, and this is not a holiday, and she isn't the kind of person who gets in a car, this murder does not occur. In addition to that, this is an unusual part of our neighborhood. Nobody, to find out how even to get into this part of our town and get out of this part of our town would be very tricky to do on your own. You have to have some knowledge of the neighborhood. If you don't have some knowledge, that background, that day, with that kind of girl, this crime does not occur. You have to have the right kind of vehicle, too. You have to have some sense of where you're going to go and have the time and the opportunity to do it. Look, all of these things have to be in place in order for this crime to occur. And as an investigator, my job is to figure out the relationship between these things because the relationship will be weird. Certain things will be primary, certain things will be secondary, certain things will be tertiary. I've got to figure out where they fall. In the end, all of this will give us an explanation as to why this crime occurred. Now, in this book, God's Crime Scene, I've looked at pieces of evidence in the room and tried to explain them by staying in the room or having to go outside the room. I think that these seven pieces are best explained by God. I will just tell you that. You can read it for yourself, but I will send you the video, so just stay tuned. I'll give you the link to get the entire video for the other seven pieces, okay? But for now, I want you to know that anything that points to a suspect is called inculpating evidence. But now we have this issue of evil. Doesn't evil kind of act like an alibi? I don't care how much evidence you have for God's existence. If there is an all-loving, all-powerful God, he would not have allowed that to happen to Jackie. When you have evidence that seems to point away from your suspect, this is called exculpating evidence. So that's the question. Does evil and suffering really exclude the possibility of God's existence? Y'all tell you on university campuses, and I'll be in Ohio State next month, 
This question comes up a lot. A lot of skepticism on the part of young people is based on some form of the problem of evil. So we have to ask that question tonight. Does this exclude? Here's how the question is typically formed by an ancient named Epicurus who said it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? In other words, if there's an all-powerful God, why doesn't he stop it? He's got the power to stop it. If he can't stop it, he's not all-powerful. Stop calling him that. If he's all-loving, you're saying if he's got all the power, he doesn't care. Well, if he doesn't care, he's not all-loving. So stop calling him all-loving. What is it? You can't, it's, it can't have it both ways. I can understand this complaint. And I think in order to answer it, we answer it the same way we answer the question about Jackie. Certain things have to be in place to formulate an answer. I can think of many reasons when taken together why God would allow an act of evil to occur. That's what I'm going to share with you tonight. I hope this will be helpful. For those of you who experience pain and suffering, this may not be helpful because this is a kind of reasoning way through the problem. But if you're somebody who has not yet suffered in evil, by just thinking about it now before the evil occurs, you will inoculate yourself from bad thinking. Does that make sense? So let's get after it. The first thing I think, there's, I think there's like seven things. There's the accurate view of eternity. We have to understand the power of free agency and the definition of love we're talking about here, the role that it plays in character development, also how it can draw us to God, and a consequence of our own stupid sin. And finally, we don't have the kind of knowledge we need to have. Let's just jump into it. Let's start with the first one. All of these, I think, explain why God would allow an act of evil. First of all, we have to understand what, how eternity changes everything. See, when I was an atheist, I had a definition of life, okay? It was 90 years from cradle to the coffin, 90 pain-free years. I mean, I figured my family lives for a pretty long time, like 92, 93, 96. They die of natural causes in those ages. I'm thinking, I want at least 90. I want to stroke out at night in my sleep with no pain. That was my goal. 90 pain-free years. That was my expectation. And if I didn't get that, I'm going to be upset if I live to the age of 40 and then I get cancer and I suffer for 10 years and die at 50, I'd be really, really, really upset. That would be evil. Why? Because I have an expectation. This would be evil because I'm expecting that. And I lost it. But what if my definition of life was wrong to begin with? What if life is not a line segment but a ray? It starts at birth, goes through the point we call death, and then it continues on infinitely off the screen. That would change everything. Some of you in this room experienced pain at a very early age because you were born with some uh, abnormality that needed to be surgically corrected. How many of you in this room were born and had to have an operation in the first six months of life, let's say? Raise your hand. There's always somebody. Okay, great. I guarantee you, if, if you would have been surveyed at six months of age, how's life? You just said, it stinks. It's painful. I don't even know why I'm here. But by the time you were three, you're over it. Because now that has to be measured in the context of your three years of life. All evil and suffering is measured in the context of what we think our life is. This may be evil, but you've got this whole life here to basically, you got over it. You're not sitting there today fretting over what you experienced in the first six months. Well, think about this for a second. If this view of life is correct, the Christian view, 
then this thing we have before the grave is really tiny compared to eternity. Does that make sense? And I don't care what happens to you in this millisecond that we call our life on earth, if the Christian view is true, it pales by your comparison to the rest of your life. Does that make sense? I used to have a problem as an atheist because I was an atheist. Under that view of life, yeah, it's not fair when bad things happen to you in your 90 years, but under our view as Christians, we are all destined for eternity. And you can suffer that first operation, even if it's a 90-year operation, if you're going to compare it against the rest of your life. This bit of evil does not seem to matter much compared to eternity. And I've met people who understand this, and they seem to be in the face of death. They are brave because they know, under the Christian narrative, what life really is. The second thing we've got to think about is we've got to think about a sense of what we mean by love and free agency. Look, if you think there's a loving God, he has two choices. He can create a world in which love is possible, or he can create a world in which love is impossible. I think if he's a loving God, he's going to create a world in which we also can love. Oh boy, you sure you want that? My wife and I, we got married on uh, Valentine's Day. Not this last year, but you know, many years ago. Let's say I got in a fight with her and we broke up. And then years later, I decided I want to try to regain her love. So I send her a new Valentine's Day card on our old anniversary. And this is the card I send her. Oh, it's beautiful. Roses are red. Bullets are lead. Take me back now or get shot in the head. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful card? Now, do you think this is going to work? I mean, I might get her to say she loves me. But would it be genuine? You can't force, you can't coerce love. That has to be offered freely. If it's programmed into you so all of us love, it's not really love. It's just an auto-response. Love by its very nature requires something dangerous. A loving God has to create a world in which there is free agency. But that is a very scary world because you have to have not just the freedom to love, but that means you have to have the equal ability, the freedom to hate. You cannot get one without the other. It is logically inconsistent. If you want a world in which love is possible at all, you have to first create a world that is full of this nasty thing called free agency. And that's going to have to have the freedom to just, just the opposite. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, this is a dangerous world. Now, a loving God does not just throw the knife at you and not tell you how to catch it, you know, by the handle of the blade. A loving God gives you this dangerous thing called free agency, and then he gives you a set of rules so you will not mishandle the dangerous thing. Now, some of us will ignore the rules, and we will mishandle the dangerous thing. But that's not on God. He's given us the thing that makes love possible in a rule book so we won't abuse it. And if some of us do, that's not on him. What do we even mean when we use this word love? I think that what's happened is the culture has kind of co-opted the definition of love to begin with. And we see it in culture, in movies, and books. We think of these definitions of love, right? Gentleness, adoration, affection. Look, how many of you in this room are parents? Raise your hand. Well, you know which definition is missing, don't you? It's this definition we call tough love, right? I've got four kids, and one of them went away to college and decided 
that she wasn't going to stay in college, and she tried to work for a number of years. And during those years that she tried to work instead of going to college, I told her, if you do this, you're going to be untethered because I can help you through your college years, but I'd be doing you a disservice to prop you up if you don't make good choices. And so then when her car breaks down and it's raining and she can't get her window to roll up or some other problem won't, you know, needs to be solved, my temptation is to write a check to fix this for her. But I don't. And I'm sure from her perspective, it might not feel good. And she might even wonder if I love her. But this is what I have to do because if I don't do this, I would be unloving. And I think we think of God as somebody who's going to answer every prayer that we ever... It's kind of like C.S. Lewis, the famous novelist, wrote when he said it this way. He said, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. That is not the God that we worship. Look, let's go back to our timeline for a second. Okay, so we have this life here, this temporal life, and then we have this life that we live in eternity. In other words, we have a life here on earth, and then we have a post-earthly life. You have earthly parents, and they are sometimes going to allow you to suffer some evil. It could be as simple as an operation or not writing that check because they're trying to get something positive later on. Well, you have an earthly father who's got domain over all of this. Oh, but Jim, come on. He might allow me to suffer some evil. I've seen people suffer an evil, and they never get nothing good ever happens to them. What are you, stupid? I mean, there's eternity God is working with. He's working. He's over here. He's working. He's doing this here to get something over here. You just may not see it. He has eternity to work with. And true love, a loving father does not care about your comfort. He cares about your character. He's looking for something that's lasting, that has eternal impact. All parents do this. Why would he be any different? Now, this next explanation, I used to think was one of the worst ones ever offered by Christians. This idea that really, so we can suffer evil, we suffer some evil because it's God trying to shape our character. What a terrible way to shape character, right? Couldn't you do it some other way? I have to suffer this evil? Yeah, but I'll tell you something. Think about it. As an atheist, I would have told you that I want a world in which these characteristics emerge. As an atheist, I thought these were high-valued characteristics that I wanted to see blossom in culture. Really, you want a world with courage, compassion, forgiveness, self-sacrifice, and charity? You want that kind of a world? Well, what do you think this happens like that? No. These are not just things that exist benignly. These are responses to circumstances. Every one of these is a response. In other words, if you want courage, you have to face some danger because danger is what develops courage. Oh, you want compassion? Well, you're going to have to experience some suffering. You want forgiveness? You're going to have to experience some evil. You want to be self-sacrificial? Well, I'm going to have to give you a hardship. You want to be charitable to people? Then you're going to have to face poverty. In other words, to get all those values you think are so great, you'd have to have a world designed like this because this kind of world develops those characteristics and turns out this is the way the world really is. This is why I never, ever pray for patience. Who does that, okay? That is stupid. If you pray for patience, what is God going to give you? A test. A circumstance is going to cause you to either develop it or fail again. Well, that's why you don't pray for these things. 
Lewis put it this way. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. So a lot of this comes down to these four things. But I've also noticed that in the crisis moments, we have a tendency to either, when we hit the very, very bottom, there's no place to look but up. When I was not a Christian, I used to think, isn't there a better way? I mean, if God really wants people, can't he just go out and get them? Just, just knock me on the, you know, I'm here. I'll answer it. Oh, really? So I was on a surveillance team when I first became a Christian, and I would sit in that car for 10 hours a day watching bad guys, and I would have the radio on, and there's thousands of Christian radio shows. There's a letter written to me. I ignored, there are people who came to me. I ignored all these efforts on the part of God to reach me. And guess what? You can continue to do that, and if you do that, God's got another way of getting you. If he can't call you, he can push you. And usually he uses hardship to push us. So for a lot of us who are stubborn, good luck with that. Eventually God's going to get you the way he wants to get you, and it could be this way. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God, who made these deserving people, may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity and the happiness of their children are not enough to make them blessed that all this must fall from them in the end, and that if they have not learned to know him, they will be wretched. You could have everything you want in the world. If you don't know God, you're not blessed. And therefore, he troubles them, warning them in advance of any insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families stands between them and the recognition of their need. He makes that life less sweet to them. God can do that, and he sometimes does, to push you in his direction. Sometimes we just do things because it's a consequence of stupid. We all do stupid things, and God is just. A, a loving God is also a just God. If you want a God who is loving, you have to buy into his justice. This is amazing balance between forgiveness and justice, Right? I cannot be a forgiving, I cannot be a grace, gracious person. Let's put it this way. If I was with my son David, we're driving down the street, and I look over my son David, I say, David, you are the most amazing young man. I love you. I wouldn't want to change a single thing about you. He's like, wow, dad really loves me. And then I see a robber robbing a 7-Eleven run out in the middle of the street, and I say, stop, Mr. Robert. I just want to tell you, you are an amazing young man. I love you. I wouldn't want to change a thing about you. Well, now David's going to say, well, I guess what you told me is meaningless because you'll tell that to anybody. If I'm not just in the way I dispense my mercy, my mercy is meaningless. You must have justice in order for mercy to make any sense at all. If you want a loving God, you've got to buy into a just God, and a just God is going to show you one of three forms of justice. We all do this as parents. We see this in court. Three forms. One looks backwards. This is retributive justice. It's when you punish somebody for the past. As parents, we sometimes do this. We'll say, you know what? I am so mad about what you did yesterday. You're grounded. How many times have you done that? Parents, how many times have you done that? A ton of times, right? 
I try to do it this way, though. This is called utilitarian justice. This is forward thinking. This is not, I'm just angry about yesterday, so I'm going to punish you. It's that, look, I'm concerned about yesterday. Because if you continue to do that, you're going to end up in trouble five years from now. Because this doesn't work this way in the real world. I am not punishing you out of anger for yesterday. I'm punishing you so you will learn this lesson and not mess it up going forward. And that is called utilitarian justice. And of course, we also have a situation of having to restore people who have been broken. Restorative justice is when we simply try to pay back. All parents really enact these three forms of justice. We do it as parents. You don't think that God also does these three things? Of course he does. Finally, there's this issue of how much do you think we can really understand about what God's plan for our life is? I mean, let's go back to our, our initial complaint by Epicurus. He said it this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. The first part of this really deals with his all-powerful nature. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? So he's suggesting, look, God's all-powerful? Then why is, he, why is it happening? The second part is really about God's all-loving nature. Really? Does he care? If he cares and he can't, maybe he doesn't care. Then he's not all loving. He's not willing. Now, this is a, a, a conundrum that Epicurus throws out, and I've seen this all the time on college campuses. Why would God allow? Because this is not the definition of the Christian God. It isn't. It's part of the definition, but it's not all of it. Uh, maybe Epicurus knew that this definition was not even in his day common to, to, the, uh, to the Jews. This is not the Jewish definition of God either. He leaves out one important characteristic that solves the puzzle. Maybe he does that intentionally, I don't know. Because God is not just all-powerful and all-loving, God is also all-knowing. And it turns out that this aspect of God explains the other two. Look, here's our timeline again. Here's all the stuff that you and I know about. It's all right here. But here's the stuff that God knows about. He knows about everything. He knows that if I do something over here, What's going to happen over here? What's going to happen over here? When I push over that domino, what's the 18th domino that will fall? If I push over this domino, what's the 4,000th domino that will fall in the next 200 years? God knows the consequence, that butterfly effect of what any small move today on the part of any of us means to somebody else 100 years from now. Only God knows those consequences. He may allow things now. If we all live eternally anyway, it shouldn't bug us. But the point is, he may allow some things. Let's put it this way. There's a very famous French Dominican priest who put it this way. He said, if God could concede me his omnipotence, his power, for 24 hours, you would see how many changes I would make in the world. But if he gave me his wisdom too, I would leave things as they are. Because we just don't know the consequence of our actions. But God does. So when I go back to this idea of why would God allow any act of evil, it's going to take me some time to explain it because I think all of these factors are in play. The same way there's not one reason why any crime occurs. That's a puzzle that I have to puzzle together as an investigator. Why would God allow any act of evil? That's a puzzle that we have to puzzle together because it's going to be these, I don't even know what proportion these things may be in. God may have some larger purpose in one area and some smaller purpose in another. How would you ever know that? How would you ever know what the relationships are between these purposes of God? I, I could never know that. But I do know this. 
when, God, when evil is finally explained, it'll be some combination of these seven things that'll explain any act of evil. But let me ask you this. Why are you calling anything evil to begin with? Why do you think it was bad that would happen to Jackie? Because you don't like it? The killer liked it. His opinion was it was okay. Your personal opinion is it's not okay? Why is your opinion more important than his opinion? Oh, because you're a group, and as a group, you agree? Really? So the largest group gets to decide what is morally true? What is morally virtuous? You better be ready then to bend your knee to China right now because they outnumber us. And whatever they think as a group is morally true, we have to say by definition. Unless, of course, the standard for moral truth is not people, individuals, groups. If the standard is larger, that would change everything. Now, Lewis, when he first became a Christian, he had an argument against God. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? In other words, what is the standard you're using? Your own personal opinion? Well, that won't work because everyone's got an opinion. If you think there's an objective, transcendent standard of good by which you judge something and call it truly evil, well, now you're stuck with the standard. Where's that standard going to come from? Well, it's God's holy nature. In other words, if you're trying to explain the stuff in the box of the universe and you think God is a good explanation, but then someone says, well, what about evil? Well, it turns out evil does not exclude the existence of God because you can't have true evil unless you have a standard of good by which you're measuring something. You can have no shadow without the sunshine. If there's a shadow, you think, an evil, it demonstrates the existence of the sunshine. So it turns out evil is not an evidence against God. It's an evidence for God because without God, there could be nothing that is truly evil. But that means you've got to jump outside the box for an explanation for evil. Because the only thing that's inside the box that could define evil would be people. Evil does not come, good does not come from physics. It's a moral standard. Physics might tell you what is true, but physics could never tell you what ought to be true. Only a moral being can do that. All moral obligations are between persons. I am not obligated to this podium, but I would be obligated to a person standing behind the podium. If you think there are objective, transcendent moral obligations, and I think there are, who is the objective, transcendent moral lawgiver who is a person that you feel obligated to? It can't be physics. That would be impersonal, like the podium. Lewis put it this way, of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. In other words, I could have just said, yeah, what's evil is whatever I say is evil. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. If evil is simply a matter of opinion, we could remove it today by simply changing our opinion. That won't work because it's more than that. 
the existence of evil points to the standard, which is God. That means if there is a standard for good by which we define evil that's outside the room, that might explain what we call evil inside the room. But here's my question for you as we leave tonight, because I think we've talked about this a little bit. I might be able to demonstrate the existence of God to you without any scripture, just from the natural world around us. I think there are things in the universe that we cannot explain unless there is a personal creator who is designing in his image. But how would you know what that God is really like? Yeah, sure, I could say there's a God like this. But I can only get so much from natural revelation. I can only get so much from looking at the universe. If you want to know what he's truly like, you have to go someplace else. And you won't know what he's truly like unless you open the word and you become rooted in the word. And that's why we do rooted. Look, folks, I was here last year. I love coming to this church. I feel like it's part of my home. I live down the the road. This is an important church, not just because it's close to my house, because it does amazing things. This is not just what should you believe, church. This is a why should you believe it, church. Do you know how rare that is in America? I'm in churches every Sunday, all over the country. Very few have people like you who are willing to step into a program like this. And we've got a whole new season of this starting very soon. Now I'm going to challenge you because I'm going to tell you what I'm seeing in culture, okay? The number of young people who are walking away is in the 70th percentile. Young people who walk away, and when we poll them at 20, 21, 22, when they're in their university years, they are no longer Christians, even though they grew up in church. They've walked away. And when you ask them, why do you walk away? The vast majority of their explanations for walking away are all about intellectual skepticism, especially based in science. That is the vast majority, number one. They do also complain about Christian hypocrisy, but it's very low compared to, I had a lot of questions that I thought science could answer better than my pastor. I had a lot of questions that I had asked along the way growing up as a Christian, and nobody had good answers for them. That is the number one set of responses. We've been polling now for about 15 years on this topic. Most recently, we've been polling, okay, well, then tell me, okay, I get it, you're leaving. Two, I get why you're leaving. Three, tell me when you first checked out. When did you first decide that this was no longer true? Because we suspected it was happening in secular universities, right? You send your kids to college. The first year they come back from college, they're no longer Christians. You're like going, what happened? I know if I asked for a raise of hands in this room, there would be anecdotal anecdotal stories all over the room of either sons, daughters, grandsons, granddaughters, nieces, nephews, somebody in your family who has walked away from the church in their 20s. But you know what we do? We pull them and we say, when did you first walk away? And it's between the ages of 10 and 17. They walked away while they were still with us in our homes, but they never told us. And the first time they got out from the side of us, They expressed what they had been thinking for years. They've had questions, questions that you need to answer for them. They do not want my stupid book. They want mom and dad to answer the questions for them. They want the people they're closest to. You have to be the best apologist your kids will ever know. 
Well, how do you get from here to there? You start exchanging your priorities. There are some of you in this room who have never been in any rooted. You've never signed up for one or two. Well, now you've got a chance to either do one, if you haven't done it yet, you lazy. Do number one at least. And then you've got a chance to sign up for three. If you've done one, you've got no excuse. You keep on. Look, there are things that we waste our intellectual life on. I can tell you, since, Kobe, uh, since uh, LeBron got traded to the Lakers, I just spent a lot of time thinking about the structure of that team, okay? I'm looking at who, where's the next shooter going to be? He's a shooter. Who's the shooter going to be? I'm thinking about these things. Really? I look at my podcast. My podcasts are a straight list of either Christian apologetics or sports. I'm telling you, I listen, you know, The Herd, uh, if it's, uh, you, know, uh, you, first, you know, first take, whatever it is, I'm listening to it. Some of you are the same way. How much time on your thought life are you spending on things that don't matter? And then when it comes time, you can actually go a little bit deeper. Oh, you're too busy. Really? No, your priorities are wrong. That's what it is. That's what it always is in the church, is that we say we love Christ. Read 1 John. Tomorrow after you read 1 John, you will sign up for Rooted. Because unless we do what we say we're going to do, if you want me to know what you love, I told you last time I was here, it's easy. Show me your calendar. I'll tell you exactly what you love. What are you spending your time on? And you can't squeeze in time to study God. This church last year had 1,000 people sign up for Rooted. This year it's going to be 2,000. That's the power of the Holy Spirit moving in this church right now. There's nothing in it for me. I, couldn't, I, don't, I don't attend church here. I just know this. We are in a desperate situation in culture where we as Christians have to know more and do more to change culture, starting with our own kids. You start by learning what's true so you can pass it on to the next generation so the next generation may know, says the psalmist. And that's why we also have a series starting, which I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to pitch you a series, but I'll tell you, I'm so encouraged when I get a chance to sit and talk to your staff because I don't care where you are, you can take another step. I don't care where you are. If you've done Rooted 1 and 2, you can take another step. That's what we're going to be talking about next week, so don't, don't miss that. Now, I'll tell you how to take another step with the materials I do. Yes, this is my shameless plug. I've written three books that I think make a case for Christianity, a case for God's existence, and a case for why you need to be ready to make a case. And I've also written kids' books that go along with these, and I'm encouraged by these kids' books because we have a kids' academy where you can go through these chapter by chapter, a ton of free downloadable materials, and then we can get you on our, uh, our, uh, our wall. We have a wall that's just all the uh, honor cadets who are kids who are reading the books and taking the curriculum cadet course. They earn a certificate at the end of it all three books. And for this, if you sign up at our website, at this hidden page, I will send you the video that has the other seven things that I think cannot be explained by staying in the room. And it's a hidden page. You have to type this into your browser. If you take one picture tonight, this is the picture you want to take because this is what you're going to type into your browser, and I will send you the video that explains all eight things that are in the room that have to be explained. Make sense? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we know that we can do a lot better at showing you our love. And we sometimes do that with our words. We pray, we talk to you. We worship you with our voices and song. We worship you with our words and prayer. We worship you with our, our time as we come here. But we don't often worship you with our minds. 
We don't often give you our thoughts so completely. And thank you for opportunities to be guided through that process. Father, stir something in us. Kick us in the rear. Help us to become the people you want us to be. And we pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.